Hey, gorgeous lady. How you doing? Hello, beautiful. I'm fucking fantastic. How the fuck are you? I'm doing so much better now that I get to see your face and we get to do this weekly funsies. Same. I'm so excited because I took your recommendation and I watched True Detective Night Country. And, and you're completely obsessed. And I'm completely obsessed. You knew. It's so good. You knew. Ugh. Yes. It's so good. You're right. It has the thing vibes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Set in Alaska, remote research station. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <gasps> Spooky shit. What the fuck? Spooky shit. It's so good. I'm so hooked. And Jodie Foster is like fucking everyone in town and I'm so here for it. She's great. She's really ah, great. I mean, yeah, she's great. And it's not, she doesn't have a, a Clarice, what the fuck's her last name? Sterling? Star, Sterling? Sterling? Or something? St- something like that. It's not that vibe. She's way more like worn down over it. Oh, yeah. Not here for your shit. She's definitely been through the ringer. Oh, yeah. And I am here for her. Ah, oh, so good. <gasps> so, yes, so good. you know me well, unsurprisingly. So, <laughs> I'm just mad now that I have to wait every week for it to come out because I needed to binge all of it immediately. Same. And apparently, I still haven't listened to the podcast because I haven't had time, but I did the next best thing, which was like, let's read recap articles on these episodes. Same. I love you. (laughs) I fucking love you. My God. I fucking love you. So I haven't seen the original True Detective since it aired in like 2012. And apparently, because there's all these connections to like the first season, I'm like, okay, that's cool. There's like the spiral thing which was very prominent, but McConaughey's dad's character, who he talks about in the first season, is in this season. And you're like, what? Yes. I was literally just about to bring that up, that I didn't realize it was a direct sequel and that there literally is a connection to his character. I had forgotten all about the spiral. Same, same. I rewatched the first season, I want to say like a year ago, two years ago. But I've watched so many things since that I had completely forgotten. Sure, of course. About the spiral and his dad was like a crazy survivalist prepper type who like lived in the middle of nowhere in yeah, Alaska. Yeah, in Alaska. Well, because it's a thing, because in the article I read, they're like, well, McConaughey brings up that he was gone for a certain period of time because he was in Alaska because his dad had leukemia. And then you see what he was actually busy doing and it wasn't. He wasn't in Alaska with his dad. He was doing some other shit. So it's like, oh, that's a lie. And then you nope. watch this. It's like, nah, bro. I mean, maybe he didn't show up, but his dad was in Alaska and he yep. has leukemia. And I was like, oh, oh yeah. I love it. No, I that blew my mind too. And I honestly didn't realize until I read the article. And then I was like, wait, what? Which, as disturbing as the first season was, kind of makes me want to go back and rewatch it. Literally same. It was so good. Also, it cracks me up because Boo has a perfect spiral on his side. And now I'm like, he's a little cult kitty. No. (laughs) I mean, of course he is. That's why you have him. You would have a cult kitty. I would have a cult kitty. It's great. I love it. I love the show. I love that you love it. It's so good. And it offset the two wildly upsetting documentaries. That I saw this week. What did you watch? I watched another one of your recommendations, but I want to hear your new recommendations first. Oh, okay. So I finished watching Take Care of Maya. Okay. Devastating. Luckily, there is more to the story than where it leaves off because I could not handle where the documentary leaves off because it is 
awful and made me want to flip every table oh, no. that I have and made me want to go to like restaurants and just start flipping tables and be like, <laughs> I'm sorry, watch this and then you'll fucking know. Send me a bill. <laughs> so there is updates since the documentary that make it not as horrendous as it ends. And then I also watched Chowchilla, I believe is how it's pronounced, which is about the school bus of children that was kidnapped in the like 60s. I saw the preview for this, but again, I had not watched it. So I quote unquote knew the story, but as is the case, the story is not the story that you know. And because they have like several of the kids who were abducted are talking heads in this. Oh, shit. It is so upsetting. And then because there just wasn't the tools or the resources or the language to deal with childhood trauma, they were like, this really traumatic thing happened to you. We're just going to send you to Disneyland. That'll do it. That'll fix it. Disneyland is not therapy, people. No. Love me some Disneyland. (laughs) Right? It's great. And I love a Disneyland therapy, but you need more than that. And that basically there was a woman who studied the effects of childhood trauma. And the reason why we know about it is because of what happened to these children and this woman studying them. Really? Yes. That's really interesting. Really interesting. But also just really upsetting because things didn't turn out super great for a lot of these kids because – Like one of them, like they started having nightmares and would be screaming in the middle of the night because this happened to them. And then some psychologist was like, well, don't go to your kid to comfort them because you're just rewarding that bad behavior. I'm sorry, what university did you graduate from? That seems like very ill-advised behavior. This isn't like, "Mm, I like, whatever. These kids went through something wildly traumatizing, but because they weren't, quote unquote, physically injured, ah, walk it off go to Disney World. It's fine. Flames on the side of my fucking face. That's fucking wild. It is so upsetting, but it's excellently done. And it's a movie. It's not a series. It's wildly upsetting. Excellently done. Uh, So as disturbing as uh, True Detective Night Country is, that was a respite for me, (laughs) comparatively. Oh my God. I believe that. Yeah. It's so good. Oh my God. And like, are are you up to date? Are you caught up on this week's episode? Yes. The last minutes, seconds in the hospital where you see, I literally screamed in my apartment. And luckily, because I live in New York, no one gives a fuck when you scream. Yes. (laughs) They're like, "Eh, that's fine. That's fine. I know. I literally cannot wait till the next episode. My God. It is so good. I like, I can't. Oh, my God. It's so good. I, like I said, I'm upset that I have to wait every week for it now. I should have just waited until it was all out and binge watched it. No, I needed to talk to you about it. That's true. I do enjoy it. We're in this together. Okay. At least I have emotional support for my true detective journey. Absolutely. Always. Always. But yes, you knew me so well. I also watched on your recommendation, American Nightmare, which was also infuriating. Oh, did I see that? I thought you did. Did you not? I don't know that I saw that. Was that my rec? I don't think so. Okay, well then watch American Nightmare. It was so fucking good. Oh, okay. Work. Amazing. It's another documentary on Netflix. It's about what was dubbed the Gone Girl case out of California. No. We talked about this, but I had not seen it. Okay. I was going to say, I thought you told me about this. Yes. 
because I talked about it randomly. And then I think you were like, oh, they did a, a series on it. And I was like, oh, I didn't know. I think that that's what the, the conversation was. Okay. Yeah. What I know about the case is uh, infuriating in every possible way. It is infuriating. Why is everyone the fucking worst? Yes. This is particularly infuriating towards the police and authorities' response to this. I really didn't know anything about this case, so I kind of went in completely blind, and it was riveting. Like, emotional roller coaster, but just phenomenally done. It's three episodes. It was one of those things I was like, yeah, I'll put an episode on, like, see how... Literally three hours later, I was like, holy fuck. I just binge-watched the entire thing. It's added to the list. Highly recommend it. You'll really enjoy it. But yes, it is infuriating. Yeah, that and Killers of the Flower Moon, because I was just informed what that's about. And I'm like, why is everyone fucking terrible? Yeah. I don't actually understand. I don't actually understand. That's a that's apparently a solid three hours of... Oh, it's Scorsese. He loves that. I know. I refuse to see it in theaters because I was like, I will fall asleep. No, no. I know me as mm-hmm. a person. Sag screener, baby. Ew. Yeah, I like, I needed to watch that with like, Pausing and pee breaks because yes, yeah, you know I can't be doing that shit. No, I barely made it through Oppenheimer. Are you kidding me? No, girl. But uh, I hear that Lily Gladstone just like fucking acts circles around DiCaprio. Really? Oh, I love that. Yeah, good for her. Yeah, that she's absolutely going to win the best actress. <gasps> Not that awards really mean much, but that's pretty fucking rad. Good for her. I hope she does. Well, as traumatizing as I've heard it is, I do kind of want to watch it just to see her performance, honestly. Yeah, and apparently there's this picture that's circulating on the interwebs from her high school yearbook that she was voted most likely to win an Academy Award, and she's probably gonna, and I love it. That's really sweet. That gave me chills. I like that. Before we move on to to the the ghosties and the alienies and all, all the fun stuff, I desperately want your input on something, Amy, and just, and our listeners in general. So last night, I spent the night with my honey, and we were changing and getting ready to go to bed. And he was like, oh, where are my pants? And he's someone who uses the word pants interchangeably as the American version, which is trousers, and then the British version, which is underwear. So he's like, oh, it's probably behind the pillow. And I'm thinking, he's talking underwear. No, he has pajama pants neatly folded behind his pillow just there waiting for him to use them. And I was like, I'm sorry, what the fuck is this? Like you just had them preset? He's like, yeah. And I was like, what? And he's like, that's a thing. And I'm like, no, No. it's not. No. I don't think so. And he's like, it definitely is. And then we went on like a YouTube, Reddit, TikTok rabbit hole where all of these people are insisting to me it's a thing. And I'm 39. And I've never heard of this being a thing. And like, there was even some chick who was like, you know, you're, you're from Spain. If, if you know you're Spanish, you're like, bitch, I'm fucking Spanish. What the fuck are you talking about? What are you talking about? I've never heard of this in my fucking life. I'm with you. I haven't really heard of this. Thank you. I will sometimes keep it like, I have like a little ottoman that's also next to my bed and I just like random sure. things get collected on it, which like sometimes sure. if I take off like my yoga pants or my little sleep shorts or something before I crawl into bed, I'll set them there. Uh-huh. No, no, but no. Like, this is like under the pillow? No, no. Pre-folded, no. like laundry out, pre-folded behind the pillow. No. 
Like that's where it lives when it's not on your body or in the wash. No. Thank you. I'm with you. I've not heard of this. I don't I've never heard of anybody else doing this. No. No. Never. Is this a regional thing? Is this like a Wisconsin thing? Okay, so I thought so. No. No, because people are like, you know, British husband TikTok, you know, you have a British. It's like everyone from everywhere. And I was like, what the fuck is this? What is this? Like, I what? No, no. Thank you. I'm not mad about it. Like, do you, if that's what you want to do. But yeah, that's not a thing I'm familiar with. One, same. That's fine. Two, I'm more of the like, why are you behaving like this is normal when it's not? <laughs> and that everyone does this. That's that's, that's fair. Honestly, that's very fair. That's yeah. more where I'm at with it. Yeah. You want to put all your pajamas behind all your pillows. You live your fucking truth. But I just wanted to to talk to you about it to yeah. see if I was alone in this. And I'm glad that I'm not. No. As per usual. You're not taking crazy pills. Again, if this is like a thing you do that's like a little quirk, fine. But this is not everyone's experience for sure. Yeah, because I was like, is this a Wisconsin thing? Because that's where he's from. No, every, it was like, mm, you like, and I was like, what the, what the, f I've literally have never heard of this ever. No. In my life. No. And I'm also not someone who dates like other Cubans from Miami. I'm like, thank you. No, that's a hard pass. Love you. <laughs> but no. Um, so like I date people from different cultures and from different places than where I'm from. So you would have thought that at some point I would have like come across this if this was like a thing. I have never encountered this before. I've never known anyone to do this. Thank you, Amy. You're welcome. And add it to the fucking pile of reasons why I fucking love you and adore you. Yeah, of course. You've given me a lot to think about with this. I literally told him like, I don't know where this relationship is going to go. Like if we're going to end up married or if the, you know, it's going to burn in flames and shit. But for the rest of my fucking life, I'm going to think about this. Yeah. Like I will remember this on my fucking deathbed. <laughs> you feel like her last words could be like, why did he keep them behind the pillow? <laughs> I don't. He's like, he's like, what? We're going to put them in a drawer? I'm like, yes. yes. That's where they go. Yeah. Does he wear them to bed? Yes. He takes them out from behind the pillow and then puts them on. No. No, this is weird. I adore your honey. I, I've met him, but no, this is weird. <laughs> like, I, again, like sometimes if I take them off before getting into bed, I will put them somewhere where they can be easily reached in case, I don't know, in my brain, I'm like, if there's an intruder, I might need to like put, or there's a fire, I might need to like put my pants on quickly, something. But like, to just store them there? No. Thank you, Amy. I completely agree. I think it's insane. Yeah. I have a side chair for the same thing of like, take it off, put it on there. Or like maybe like in the middle of the night, I get cold or I get hot. Yeah. Put on the chair. Fine. It doesn't live on the chair. No. It has a space. That's just like the yes. intermediary spot that it goes to. Yeah. Yes. It's the easy access spot. Yeah. No, it lives. It lives. I found out after almost seven months of dating, his pajama pants live behind the pillows. Okay. I also just have too many pajama pants to do that, I think. You know, same. I don't like have just one pair that's like the default pair. Like I've got, you know, different styles, different fleece levels. So I'm not just yes. like, it, it would be the entire back of my bed if I did that. <laughs> it would be insane. I would just, I would Literally be sleeping same. in a pile of pants. That's what this would be. Literally same. Yeah. I love you. Oh my God. So yeah, I'm with you, but you know, if he wants to do that, like go for it. 
Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I just wanted to make sure that I wasn't the only one who had never heard of this. No, 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 I've never heard of that. You're not insane. Okay. We're in the same boat here. I love it. I love you. Thank you. Thank you for You're that. You're so welcome. That was just really necessary. We're always on the same page. To... You knew I was going to say that. Of I mean, I don't know because they're, you know, you had like chickens and shit. So maybe it's like, yeah, we did that. Like, I don't know. I don't fucking know. <laughs> yeah. You know, in case you got to run out to get the chickens, you want the pants for easy access. You got, you got it. Right? Yeah. Right behind your pillow. Right. Where they belong. Nope. All right. I'm glad. I'm glad that, that we got that sussed out. I'm glad too. The pressing questions that we need to answer. Yes. People want to know. Yes. Specifically me. I am people. <laughs> the best people. I love it. <laughs> All right. On that note. Yes. With that out of the way. Now, now that we're past the important business, are you ready to get into our paranormal story of the week? I am so fucking ready. Amazing. I'm so glad. So I actually heard about this a couple weeks ago while I was doing research for another story. And as soon as I realized that Night Country was set in Alaska, I knew I had to do it. Fuck yeah. So sources, the show, The Alaska Triangle, season one, episode five, outdoorlife.com, onlyinyourstate.com, alaskaforreal.com, paranormalcatalog.net, and good old Wikipedia. Amazing. So today we're going to talk about the legend of the Kushtika. The Kushtika comes from the folklore of the Klingit, one of the Alaskan native indigenous tribes of the Pacific Northwest coast. The Klingit, which means people of the tides, are one of 229 federally recognized tribes of Alaska. Although various indigenous people have continuously occupied the Alaska Territory for thousands of years, elements of the Clinket culture can be seen as far back as 10,000 years ago. Damn. Originally occupying a territory that extended from the Portland Canal along the present border between Alaska and British Columbia, north to the coast, just southeast of the Copper River Delta in Alaska, they are now spread across the border between the United States and Canada. Unlike in the lower 48 states, where Native Americans are restricted to reservations administered by tribal governments, the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act of 1971 established regional corporations throughout Alaska with complex portfolios of land ownership. The corporation in the Klingit region is Sulaska, and many of the Klingit have land allotments from the Sulaska Corporation. Because they don't have designated reservations and their territory overlaps with many other indigenous tribes of North America, it's difficult to determine the range of their current territory, but it's generally divided into four major sections, southern, northern, inland, and Gulf Coast. And the groups that reside in these regions are marked by differences primarily in their dialects and food harvesting practices. The Klingit have maintained a hunter-gatherer culture based on semi-sedentary management of fisheries. However, the Klingit people as a whole participate in the commercial economy of Alaska. They typically live in American nuclear family households, which, if you don't know what that is, it's like two parents, two children, your classic American traditional household. Yep. With private ownership of housing and land, which, because they practice a matrilineal system, property and hereditary roles pass through the mother's line. Yes. Which I love. I support this. Multifaceted and complex, the Klingit culture places a heavy emphasis on family and kinship and art and spirituality are incorporated in nearly all areas of life. Everyday objects such as spoons and storage boxes are decorated and imbued with spiritual power. The Klingit are traditionally animists who believe that plants and animals possess distinct spirits. Mm. 
Hunters ritually purified themselves before hunting, and their shamans, who were primarily men, cured diseases, influenced weather, predicted the future, and protected people against witchcraft. The Klingit also believe in the reincarnation of both humans and animals. The Klingit, like other Native Americans, have a rich storytelling tradition, and one of the tales passed down from generation to generation for thousands of years was that of the Kushtika. The Kushtika, which literally translates to land otter man, is a shape-shifting creature that inhabits all of Southeast Alaska. It is believed to live not only between the water and the land, but also between the spiritual and physical worlds. It appears as either a regular otter or a large, muscular, human-otter hybrid. Oh. But it's also believed to be able to transform into any other animal or, more terrifyingly, the form of a loved one. <gasps> yes. So it's like Wendigo skinwalker shit. <gasps> yes. It's considered extremely bad luck to even mention its name. So I've fucked myself with this story, apparently. And I'm, <laughs> I'm taking the hit for you guys. Thank you. Thank you for your service, Amy. You're welcome. You're so welcome. And the Klingit believe it's responsible for countless missing people over the years. The Kushtika are generally seen as evil creatures, the equivalent of the Klinkit boogeyman who set out to lure people to their deaths. In many of the stories, they appear when someone is lost or injured as one of their kinsmen and claim that they're rescuing them. But instead, they turn the person into a fellow Kushtika, which, although it allows them to survive the cold and technically saves them, seems like a shitty deal since they are now forever trapped between worlds as another Kushtika. So this is like vampire shit. Exactly. There are rumors that they will imitate the cries of a baby or the screams of a woman to lure victims <gasps> into a river or deep into the forest. Holy shit. That's so creepy. I know. I don't like it. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. I'm going to reference a book later, which I did okay. read in that many stories of people who had like heard screaming women Mm-mm. and just like Mm-mm. Mm-mm. there was nothing there. No. Yep. Yep. No, thank you. No. Mm -mm. Once it lures them into the river or in the forest, the Kushika either kills the person and tears them to shreds or again will turn them into another Kushika, which prevents their soul from being able to reincarnate. It's also believed to emit a high-pitched three-part whistle in the pattern of low, high, low, which again, very much reminds me of your Wendigo story. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. According to a Klingit shaman, Quote, they know how to do things we don't even understand yet. It's beyond us, end quote. But apparently there are a few stories where the Kushtika are benevolent and helpful, and there have been sailors who were lost at sea that said they were kept warm by a friendly Kushtika. However, it seems best not to take your chances. Frederica de Laguna, a cultural anthropologist who has studied the Klingkit culture extensively, said, quote, the land otter is more feared than the brown grizzly. The latter, quote, don't do nothing. He only fights you. And if you appeal to him for pity, he won't even bother you. The land otter, however, is lurking to save. That is, to capture those who drown, who are lost, or who wander in the woods. And such unfortunates are taken by these land otter men to their homes or dens, and unless rescued in time by a shaman, are in their turn transformed into land otters, end quote. Oh, my God. Yeah. How they're like, fuck a bear. Right? Like, That's fine. Otters? Like, what the fuck? Don't fuck with an otter. 
I guess so. I always thought they were cute and they would like hold hands Same. while they slept. Same. But apparently that is also how they get you is because otters are very cute. And so you see one and then you're like, oh my God, it's so cute. And then that's how it gets you. Beware of the otters. It's fucked up, Amy. It's very fucked up. I know. I'm ruining <laughs> otters for a lot of people. I'm very sorry. Just like, you know, keep an eye out. Knowledge is power. I love it. There you go. Fortunately, it's said that the Kushtika can be warded off through copper, urine, dogs, and fire. Kushtikas are particularly drawn to children, and most often victims are snatched when they wander into the woods or near the water. As a result, there are those who believe that the Kushtika is just an old wives' tale that mothers tell to keep their kids from going off into the woods or playing near the ocean unattended. While the Clinket have been sharing stories of the Kushtika for thousands of years, the first record of a Western encountering the creature came from a prospector and a fisherman named Henry D. Culp. When he died in 1950, his wife found a manuscript he'd written entitled The Strangest Story Ever Told. It begins in 1900 when people were still leaving the lower 48 states and heading to Alaska in the hopes of striking it rich in gold. At the time, a 19-year-old Culp was living in a shack with three other prospectors in the village of Wrangell. All three were broke and desperate to make their fortune. One prospector, called Charlie in the story because he didn't want to be named, knew of an elderly clinket man who had a big piece of quartz flecked with gold. Charlie asked the man where he'd gotten it, and after repeatedly brushing him off, the man finally caved and told him that he'd found it in Thomas Bay, which was known at the time as the Bay of Death, due to a massive landslide in 1750 that claimed the lives of 500 people. Interesting to note, Kushtikas are also said to be responsible for causing natural disasters such as landslides and avalanches. So, unsurprisingly, because of this, the Clinket believe the area is haunted by evil spirits, and many of them refuse to visit to this day. Despite telling Charlie where he'd found the gold, the elder warned him not to go looking for it, that the area there was haunted by evil spirits, and even if he found the gold, it wouldn't do him any good because he too would be haunted. Unsurprisingly, though, Charlie ignored the warning and in May set out alone to find the gold. Following the elder's directions, he first canoed up the Patterson River, then hiked to where the gold deposits supposedly lay. The first thing he noticed was that there didn't seem to be any life there at all, and he said that he could spend all day in the woods without seeing a single squirrel. Charlie finally found the gold deposit near the lake the elder had told him about, but after picking up a large piece of quartz flecked with gold, he saw something he'd never seen before. Quote, Swarming up the ridge toward me from the lake were the most horrible creatures. I couldn't call them anything but devils, as they were neither men nor monkeys, yet looked like both. They were entirely sexless, their bodies covered with long, coarse hair, except where scabs and running sores had replaced it. Each one seemed to be reaching out for me and striving to be the first to get me. The air was full of their cries, and the stench from their sores and bodies made me faint. I forgot my broken gun and tried to use it on the first ones, and then I threw it at them and turned and ran. God, how I did run. I could feel their hot breath on my back. Their long, claw-like fingers scraped my back. The smell from their steaming, stinking bodies was making me sick, while the noises they made, yelling, screaming, and breathing, drove me mad. End quote. Charlie didn't know how he managed to reach his canoe and escape the creatures. He said when he came to, it was night, and he was lying in the bottom of his canoe drifting in the water. Weeks later, in June, when Charlie showed up back in Wrangell, 
He arrived without his coat or hat and had nothing with him but the piece of quartz full of gold specks he'd found. He looked like hell and immediately asked Culp and his other friends for money to get a ticket for the next steamship to Seattle, telling them he never wanted to set foot in Alaska again. He told them that he'd tell them about his trip to Thomas Bay and where he'd found the quartz, but advised them to forget about it because it would only cause them a lot of mental and physical pain. He said if they hadn't been partners, he would have never told anyone the story or what he'd found. But if they promised to never mention his name in connection with what he was about to tell them, he would tell them what happened and said they could judge for themselves as to his saneness because it was beyond him to reason it out. Over the years, more strange stories emerged of a number of prospectors encountering madness and strange creatures in the area. Though it's never explicitly stated, most Southeast Alaskans believe these stories are about the Kushtika. Although many also believe it's nothing more than alcohol-inspired storytelling. Regardless, Thomas Bay soon became known by prospectors as Devil's Country because of the devil-like creatures reported there. When Harry Culp's daughter, Virginia, was interviewed years later about her father's story, she said she couldn't say whether it was true, false, or some sort of mental aberration, but expressed confidence in her father's truthfulness. However, she did say that large amounts of arsenic were alleged to be present in the watershed at Thomas Bay, which may explain the strange events. Even Culp himself chalked Charlie's story up to, quote, a fantasy caused by loneliness and morbid thought, end quote. Um, that's quite a fantasy. Yeah. Like, you gotta be really lonely and feeling really morbid to hallucinate all of that. I don't even know, because I've been both of those things, and I've never hallucinated otter people. No! no. You know? I mean, yeah, I'm with you on this. It's pretty wild. I can understand your mind playing tricks on you about things. Like maybe you see like a thing out of a corner of your eye or you see like a shadow or something, you know, if you're like freaked out or whatever. But like to be like, oh, there's like other people here and they're totally not there. And there's no like chemical thing that has made you hallucinate this. Yes. Okay. <laughs> sure, Jan. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm just like, no. I I, I know. Yes. And apparently no. – <laughs> he also like had scratches on his back from them getting. Dude, so what close the fuck? Come on. Yes. So again, it's one of those things like you're in the middle of nowhere. People go a little get a little like cabin fever, get a little crazy sometimes. You never know. Sure. But to be like, I'm leaving and I'm never coming back. That's some shit. And I'm gonna tell you this fucking crazy shit before I go. That's going to make me look probably not great. Yeah. And you're going to think I'm fucking nuts. Yeah. But I'm going to tell you mm. because you need to be warned. Like, I take that a little seriously. Yeah. Allegedly, in 1925, there was another story from a trapper who lost his dog in the hills around Thomas Bay. He said when he went looking for it, he found strange tracks with the hind feet resembling a cross between a bear's and a human's footprints. The trapper returned later to check the traps he'd hastily left. Some were sprung. Some were not and others were destroyed. When he set out a second time to try to find his dog, he disappeared and was never seen again. Bajoran Dila, who was born and raised in Southeast Alaska, wrote a book on the history of the region as told through unsolved mysteries and supposedly paranormal events. And the book, titled Haunted Inside Passage, has a chapter focused on stories of the Kushtika. For the record, though, Bjorn says he isn't a ghost guy. 
He described himself as skeptical and cynical and said, quote, I believe the stories grew from the psychological pressures of living in a place where it's not abnormal for people to die or disappear in the outdoors, end quote. Nevertheless, he proceeded to research stories for his book, cold calling people and asking them if they'd ever had an experience with Akushtika. He said some people laughed, some said they had, but had no interest in telling him about it. And finally, there were a handful of people who told him some very unsettling stories. He was also warned that what he was doing could open doors to a dark, dangerous path. While writing his book, Bjorn was also working nights at a psychiatric ward at the local hospital. He spent most of his 12-hour shifts with a violent patient who had both autism and schizophrenia. And Bjorn said that between screaming threats and profanities, the patient would sometimes rant about the kushika. And it's rumored that people, children, and adults alike who've encountered or taken by the kushika frequently go insane and that bringing them back to the community afterwards is difficult. Even after finishing the book and hearing all these stories, Bjorn still remained skeptical until weird things started happening to him as well. After he turned in his manuscript and quit the ward, he decided to celebrate by hiking around Douglas Island with his girlfriend, MC, and their dog, Fen. During this trip, when he walked back to their camp after gathering some firewood, he said MC was acting weird and nervous and Fen was growling and barking. He asked what was going on and MC told him there was something in the woods. He immediately searched the forest around the camp, but found nothing. So he told her it was probably just a porcupine or a marmot. They ate dinner, then set up their tent just inside the woods as the sun set. Bjorn drifted out to sleep right away, but shortly after, MC shook him awake and told him there was something outside the tent. Since Fen was also growling, he knew something must be out there, so he left the tent to check around the campsite. He didn't see anything, but then said he heard the distinct noise of tumbling rocks falling, which, considering they were camped on a flat, didn't really make sense. He was reminded of the time a few years back when he and his little brother had been camping in that very same spot and had heard weird voices approaching them in the darkness. When he got back into the tent, he found that MC was now suddenly in a deep sleep and snoring, which he thought was very odd considering how worked up she'd been just minutes before. But he decided to just ignore the strangeness and go back to sleep. A little while later, MC shook him awake once again and again insisted that there was something outside the tent. So Bjorn once again went out to check, this time a little annoyed. But again, he didn't see anything. When he returned to the tent, he told MC not to wake him up again unless it was a bear. A little while later, Bjorn was startled awake, but this time it wasn't MC. There was something pushing against his feet. At first, he thought it was Fen, so he tried to push her away with his feet, but she wouldn't budge. When he felt around the dark tent, though, he found the dog asleep between him and MC and nowhere near his feet. He said whatever was on his feet was compressing the tent wall and pushing from outside. No, thank you. Yeah, no, no. Again, don't go in the fucking woods. <laughs> I know, you're like, absolutely I don't not. know what else. Monique's not going to Alaska. I know that. No. I mean, I have been to Alaska. It's very beautiful. But you're staying in a city. I mean, I did go in the woods in the daytime on a tour. And I looked at like the salmon rushing and shit and like, you know, God's majesty and everything. And it okay. was beautiful. Um, I didn't. <laughs> stay there no 
I didn't stay overnight. I was like, no, I'm going to go into the indoors. I'm getting the fuck out of here. Correct. Yeah. 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 Panicked, he kicked whatever it was and said he heard the thing run off on what sounded like two feet. He immediately woke MC and told her that she was right and there had definitely been something outside their tent. But she told him he must have been dreaming. Seemingly with no recollection of having woken him up and told him there was something outside the tent prior to this. Despite his terror, Bjorn said he felt like he'd been drugged and that it took all of the energy and courage he had to unzip the tent and search the blackness with his headlamp. But once again, he found nothing. Bjorn's father had a similar experience when Bjorn was a kid. While out on a hunt, he saw deer walking through the mist. Then, for some strange reason, it sat down at the base of a tree. After an indefinite amount of time, he woke up groggy, wandering deeper into the woods, clutching his rifle. The weirdest thing was that he wasn't wearing his backpack, which contained all of his hunting and survival gear. For hours, he searched for his pack, becoming increasingly ill at ease, until darkness forced him from the woods. He said he's still not sure what was wrong with him or those woods that day, but that something was definitely off. Now, I did check out the Kushtika stories in Bjorn's book, and for the record, there were a lot of them. Mm. Some of them were reminiscent of his father's, of feeling strangely groggy and coming to only to find they were missing their gear or coming back to their cabin and finding all their gear suddenly outside, while others were stories of people who'd seen someone from their group only for them to disappear suddenly and when they confronted them later, they denied being anywhere near where the person said they'd seen them. Still, others heard their friends' voices talking and responding to them, but when they asked them about it later, they had no idea what they were talking about. But most of these stories were really short. A lot of people wanted to remain anonymous, and since many of the stories were very similar, I decided not to get into them individually. However, I will leave you with one more story of the Kushtika. In the show, The Alaska Triangle, Texan Diana Lynn Tucker shared her experience while vacationing in Alaska with her husband in the summer of 2007. They rented a house and had invited some of their friends to come up and visit them. One day in July, Diana and her friend Cherie decided to go for a walk in the woods. The next thing she knew, everything went silent. She looked around for Cherie, but the two must have gotten separated because her friend was nowhere to be found. All of a sudden, she was surrounded by big black birds. There were so many that they literally darkened the woods around her. Oh, shit. That is so... I would... You know I don't like birds, Monique. I don't have a bird Uh. thing, but like that would freak me the fuck out. Yeah. I'd be like, what the fuck is happening here? Yeah. Hard pass. Mm -mm. No thank you. Mm -mm. And because Diana, like many of us, had been traumatized by the movie The Birds as a kid, they Mm -hmm. were one of her biggest fears. And she couldn't speak or move. She could hardly breathe. That's how terrified she was. Then she turned and saw what she described as a bird-like man. Quote, a huge entity with a beak face, end quote. And she was absolutely terrified. Suddenly she fell, though she doesn't know how, and the birds began to attack her. As they scratched and pecked her, Diana feared for her life. But fortunately, she was somehow able to escape and immediately ran to find her friend. Diana said she couldn't make sense of her experience and the bird-like man she'd seen. Not long after, which in the show, they like run into this woman on the trail but i don't know if this was like 
a couple days mm-hmm. later. So right. do with that information what you will. So not long after, she ran into a Clinkett elder and Diana said, quote, she looked up at me with the fear of God in her eyes as if she had just seen the devil, end quote. The elder immediately asked Diana if she'd been touched by the Kushtika. And Diana finally had a name for the unexplainable creature she had seen and said it was validating. Quote, this was real. This did happen. And there's something out there. End quote. She still carries the scars from the attack to this day. The Kushtika are said to prey upon your most primal fears, which for Diana just so happened to be birds. But according to Bjorn, the legend of the Kushtika is much more complicated than just being stories of a shape-shifting monster in the woods trying to entrap you, and it defies any Western system of classification. It's a monster, spirit, and for many Southeast Alaskans, it's disturbingly real, even if it's more often in a metaphorical way. To this day, Alaska remains the great unexplored region of America, and more than 20,000 people have disappeared there since the early 1970s. People go missing in Alaska at twice the rate of the national average. Although most of these can be chalked up to the remote landscape, harsh conditions, and wild animals, maybe, just maybe, the Kushtika are responsible for some of the disappearances. And that is is the Clinket legend of the Kushtika. Girl, what the fuck? I know. I don't like that. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to hot take. Um, no, I don't like it either. <laughs> All the stories were very creepy. No, hard pass. Anything that imitates your loved ones to trick you, I'm out. It's the most terrifying thing to me. 10,000%. And I'm not going to lie, uh, this podcast has not made me want to go to the woods like kind of ever it's not helping that <laughs> i just keep adding on i'm just keep adding <laughs> just more evidence for flames. why like, you shouldn't go to the woods yeah i'm fucking good I mean, yo um that's horrifying uh, last podcast recently did an episode on the alaska triangle and i i think they may have like touched upon this very likely yes very like but it wasn't like it was very little it wasn't this level because there's a lot of shit going on in the Alaska Triangle, which I – obviously, uh, that was the barely. title of the show, but I only wanted to focus on this. But yeah, apparently there's like an Alaska Loch Ness and there's a bunch of like haunted places. And yeah, again, people just like disappear there all the time. Like planes crash and they never find them and yes. And that's a thing. Like, you know, like there's like the Malaysian flight like – which is the thing that keeps you up at night of like, where the fuck is it? But also, yeah. you know. There's a documentary on that, which I just barely started, but then had to stop. I've been avoiding it because I'm like, this is, I'm just never going to sleep again, realistically. Yeah. I'll watch it at some point when I just want to get upset. Like, it went into the ocean. That's where it is. Like, 99.9%. That's where it is. Or got abducted by aliens. And the thing is, we know like 0% of what's in the ocean because it's so deep. And so, okay, fine. That's where it is. Spoiler. But Alaska, it's like, are all of the planes going into the waters? Like, they have to be going into the fucking wilderness, too. Where the fuck are they? Yes. There's um, rumors that in the Alaska Triangle, there's, like, some sort of vortex. Like a portal. Mm-hmm. And that's why. 
apparently there's also like very weird electromagnetic readings and a lot of Mm -hmm, times mm -hmm. like compasses are like off by like 30 degrees or something crazy oh wow that's a lot to be off it's a lot yeah it's like i want to say like more than anywhere else kind of so it's just very very strange and the fact that like these stories have been around for like thousands of years a little suspicious you know a little freaky if you need a fun fact for the story apparently charlie sheen went searching for the kushika in 2013 thank you charlie right so ridiculous i actually can't i found that out at the very end of this story like my research BT and I was just like <laughs> i'm not including this in the main body but i'll tag it on at the end because i got a little giggle up after that was this like prime like tiger blood years where like Charlie i feel, was like, going it through it? I feel yeah. like it was yeah yeah that makes yeah. that makes sense doesn't rob lowe and his sons have like a like a bigfoot series they do on sci-fi they do yes robert get on this this is bigfoot adjacent yes <laughs> bigfoot adjacent get on it i love it i love that that was wildly unsettling but i love that i didn't i didn't know about all that obviously same so yeah, I watched a bunch of episodes of the Alaska Triangle, and then I heard this, and I was like, I'm sorry, excuse you, what's it? So yeah, in honor of True Detective, Night Country, and some weird paranormal shit, I figured Alaska Shapeshifter for you. I fucking loved it. But can you imagine, so a True Detective, Night Country takes place in a fictional town, Ennis, but there are places in Alaska where there are 67 days of night. Can you imagine... No sunlight for two fucking months, and you come across one of these motherfuckers? No, thank you. No, thank you. No. No. Mm -mm. No. No. Get the padded cell. I'm done. Forever. Goodbye. Yes. Goodbye. No. I would not leave my house. No. Just no. For two months, I would just stay inside. That's what I would do. I mean, we also, like, complain when it's, like, 30 degrees. We're, like, fucking terrible. So (laughs) imagine in Alaska. It's December and, like... (gasps) 40 below or whatever the fuck yes and there's no fucking sunlight out my god yes we actually did discuss that while watching the show is because it's constantly night it's very hard to determine like what time of day it is and like how much time has passed yeah thank god they do the like fifth day fourth day of night situation absolutely but still very unsettling yes in my deep dive into the series they filmed in Iceland, and they did 43 night shoots in a row, which is Damn. Oh, that's rough. Night shoots are very hard, and to do 43 in a row sucks. Yeah. But they're nailing it. It looks incredible. I'm riveted. Watch Night Country. Yes. They don't pay for us. They don't give us money. No, we just just like them. (laughs) We're doing it for free out of the goodness of our hearts because we really enjoy it. We're fans. We think you will, too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for that. Oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. Of course. And now, do you have a really upsetting, traumatizing true crime story for me? I feel like yep. it's been a while. Yep. Yep. The yeah. Mr. Magoo counterfeiter. No. It's fucking gone, girl. It was nice while it lasted. I appreciated that. Yeah. It's very upsetting. This is a story that I'd wanted to do several months ago, and I found it, and then I thought I bookmarked it, and I didn't. And then I did another story that I thought was this, but I knew it wasn't because there was a detail that was not the same. And then I was determined to do it again. And then it was like uh, five hours trying to find this fucking story. But here we are. I'm so hyped for it now. That was such a buildup. We're going to get into all of my um, 
Google search attempts at the end of this <laughs> and how Google basically failed me. It's like the behind the scenes. I love it. Out worse. I was so upset. But it's okay. Figured it out. We're here. So sources. Crack.com. The Salt Lake Tribune. Desert.com, which is Desert News. Awesome fucking website name. Medium.com. WTVR.com. DailyMail.UK.co. WashingtonPost.com, People.com, and Wikipedia. In the fall of 2014, the future was looking bright for the Strack family. After several run-ins with the law and years of suffering from heroin and opiate addictions, Christy and Benjamin Strack appeared to finally have gotten a handle on their respective addictions. Christy had often been prescribed methadone to help wean her off of heroin. And over the years, Benjamin, who worked at AK Masonry, a bricklaying company would often skip work for long stretches of time to help his wife detox. While you're probably thinking that no employer would go for that, Benjamin's boss was super sympathetic and understanding to a situation. Why? I'm going to guess it's because we're in Utah. And if you're in Utah, odds are you're dealing with Mormons, who are traditionally the nicest people ever. Christy and Benjamin Strack lived in Springfield, Utah, 50 miles south of Salt Lake City, and were devout members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The couple had three children, two boys and a girl, Benson, Emery, and Zion, who Christy homeschooled. Also living with the Stracks were Christy's 18-year-old son from a previous marriage, Jansen, as well as Jansen's girlfriend, whom he had recently proposed to. On September 27, 2014, Jansen's girlfriend woke up at 6 a.m. and chatted with Christy a bit, who was also up. Jansen's girlfriend went back to sleep, and a short while later, the pair of teenage lovebirds left the quiet house that afternoon. When the couple returned after 7 p.m. that evening, the house was still quiet, which was highly unusual. When you live with five other family members, including three siblings all under the age of 15, you're used to it being noisy. On a normal evening, he would have seen his parents and three siblings, likely hanging out in the living room or kitchen. But that night, he couldn't find anyone. When he called out to them, there was no response. So Jansen and his fiance searched the home. He went upstairs, and that's when he noticed his parents' bedroom door was closed. Also unusual. When he went to open it, he couldn't. It was locked. That door was never locked. Something was wrong, so... Jansen called his grandmother, who lived close by, for help. A short while later, Jansen's grandmother, Valerie Sudweeks, arrived at the Strack home at 954 East 900 South with her friend, Maureen Ledbetter. As Jansen and Valerie forced to open the master bedroom door, they came across the unthinkable, the lifeless bodies of all five Strack family members. Maureen immediately called 911, and during the brief but frantic call, Valerie Jansen and his fiance can be heard screaming and crying in the background. Maureen told the dispatcher, quote, Oh my God, the whole family killed themselves. End quote. What the fuck? Girl, we're going to get into it. I'm going to tell you right now, no. <laughs> Police arrived at the scene shortly thereafter, and upon entering, they found the front door of the house open and the back door was open, but just a crack. In the master bedroom, 14-year-old Benson Strack's body was found lying on his stomach on a mattress on the floor. His 12-year-old sister, Emery's body, was found on a mattress under a blanket at the foot of the bed. The bodies of Christy Strack, 
36, and her 11-year-old son, Zion, were found lying under the covers of the master bed. Ben Strack's body was found on top of the covers, between Zion and Christy, with one arm and leg partially draped over his wife. He was 37 years old. And as police investigated the scene, they couldn't immediately determine a cause of death. None of the bodies showed any indication of stab wounds, gunshot wounds, or blunt force trauma. While two entrances of the home were found open when authorities arrived, it was clear to Springville Police Lieutenant Dave Karen that, quote, nobody went in the house and shot these people or stabbed these people, end quote. The Strax bedroom had a large TV and there were several bottles of water, sodas, as well as cups containing a red liquid that were found inside of the room where the bodies were located, leading investigators to theorize that maybe the family had gathered together the room to watch a movie, and that maybe this was just a terrible accident, and that the family had maybe succumbed to carbon monoxide poisoning. Fire crews arrived 10 minutes later, but when they measured the home for carbon monoxide levels, they found the structure was safe to enter. Here's the thing. Because both the front and back doors were found open, it didn't necessarily mean that there weren't any dangerous levels of carbon monoxide in the home to begin with. It was very possible that enough gas had ventilated out of the house by the time the carbon monoxide test was done. And not only that, there was a storm brewing that day, so it was especially windy out. Also, a kitten was found alive and unharmed, locked in a separate room, and the rest of the family pets were all found alive and well. Authorities were stumped. Lieutenant Karen told reporters, quote, There's nothing that screamed anything. There's nothing, no note, no barbecue or gas heater, no container with a skull and crossbones on it, end quote. Karen continued saying, quote, I have no reason to think it is carbon monoxide, but I don't have any reason to think it isn't, end quote. But ultimately, they had nothing. Preliminary autopsy results ruled out any sort of violent assault or foul play, and toxicology reports notoriously take months for results to come back. Authorities thoroughly searched the house and sent samples of the drinks found in the bedroom to the Utah State Crime Lab for testing. Notebooks and cell phones were collected from the scene as detectives searched for any possible clue as to what might have happened. And while investigators awaited test results, they got to work searching the house for clues and interviewing friends, family members, and colleagues. Neighbors described the Strax as shy people who mostly kept to themselves. Friends and family members described them as a loving family. Valerie insisted that her daughter would never harm her children. Christy's best friend in school, Amanda Muir, said of Christy, quote, She enjoyed being a mom. She loved Ben so much. I remember when she met him. She was so infatuated with him. She loved him. It's so terribly sad. She and Ben loved each other so much. End quote. While the family was shocked by the tragedy, in hindsight, it may not have been so surprising. Friends and family told police that over the last several years, Christy and Ben had grown increasingly paranoid and concerned about the upcoming apocalypse, warning of quote-unquote impending doom. Oh no. Oh no. Ugh. Christy had already pulled the kids out of school and was homeschooling them. And the couple had shared plans about moving to the Montana wilderness and living off the grid to escape the, quote, evil of the world, end quote. 
So when Christy and Ben spoke of, quote unquote, leaving this world, everyone assumed they just meant civilization. But after this tragedy, authorities started to think that maybe the Strex realized that moving off the grid wasn't going to be enough, that the only way to truly escape the evils of the world would be to end their lives as well as the lives of their three children. This lens offered some clarity as to some of the items found at the Strack home. In a notebook, a to-do list had been found scribbled on its pages. The list included such items as feed the pets and find someone to watch after the house, the type of list that you would make if you were getting ready to go on vacation, or any other scenario where you didn't plan on being home for an extended period of time. Not only that, in Benson's room, Investigators found a letter dated two days before the bodies were found written by the 14-year-old to his best friend, which indicated that he didn't think he would be around much longer and that he was bequeathing his personal belongings to him in the event that he were no longer here. What the fuck is going on right now? Girl, we're going to get into it. We're going to get into it. But yes, what the fuck is going on? Bob McGee, the uncle of the Strack's lone surviving son, as well as the family spokesperson, said, quote, In that letter, it was clear he was expecting something to happen. End quote. In a search of the Strack home, officers also found a trash bag that contained 10 empty boxes of nighttime cold and flu medicine, two empty boxes of generic Benadryl, as well as several empty bottles of liquid methadone that had been prescribed to Christy Strack. Jesus Christ, that's a hell of a cocktail. Girl. Talk about the flavor aid. I am not here for this. Thank you. Also, thank you for being correct about that because, of course, you were. It's not Kool-Aid. It's flavor aid because Jim Jones was a cheap motherfucker and couldn't shell out the extra five cents (laughs) for... I'm not splurging for name brand. Stop it. I adore you. I adore you. Of course. Toxicology reports finally came back in January and revealed that all three of the Strack children died from toxic levels of diphenhydramine and methadone. While the red liquid that had been found in cups in the bedroom was revealed to have contained no controlled substances, a purple children's plastic pail, the type that you take to the beach to make sandcastles with, contained a yellow-orange liquid made up of cherry-flavored methadone, dextromethorphan, diphenhydramine, acetaminophen, caffeine, doxyliamine, and ibuprofen. Jesus Christ. Woof. I feel like you probably only need like half of what was actually in there. I mean, I agree, but I guess they wanted to get it right. This is the definition of overkill. Yeah, absolutely. Investigators believed that the children all drank from the small bucket and in what is the only silver lining of this awful story, the concoction put the children to sleep first before ultimately killing them. Okay. Not great. You shouldn't poison your children, but... Yeah, I mean, at least there's that. While there is no evidence either way to suggest whether the children ingested the lethal cocktail willingly or by force, Emery and Zion's deaths were both ruled a homicide. But in a what-the-fuck move, the medical examiner ruled 14-year-old Branson Strack's manner of death as, quote, 
could not be determined. End quote. What? No. Yep. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Saying, quote, because of his age, it is difficult to determine if he was capable to make a decision to commit suicide or to consent to join with his parents in committing suicide. The other two children were obviously too young to consent to any sort of agreement to commit suicide, end quote, which is bullshit. Sorry. No, 14 is still too young to consent. Like, your brain's not fully formed until you're 25. Like, he didn't know. You are still in an age where you, unless you're in a horrible rebellious phase, you listen to your parents. Absolutely. That and the, like, kind of suicide note he left, leaving all of his belongings to his best friend, factored in the quote-unquote, could-not-be-determined decision, which is just horseshit and bullshit across the board. Yeah. You don't know what his parents told him that, like, implied that they weren't coming back and he maybe needed to leave his stuff to his friend. Like, no. Exactly. You have no idea. I feel like it wasn't, like, a clear suicide note where he was like, I am miserable. I am going to end my life. Like, no. This kid didn't know what the fuck was going on. Yeah. And it's this is one of those things where how, like, you know, in, in Jonestown, it's a misnomer to say that it was a mass suicide. It wasn't. It was a mass murder. If you've listened to the Jonestown tapes, which I have, fun at parties, it is harrowing and awful because those people did not want to do that at all. They were murdered, just like these people murdered their kids. Yes. Christy Strack's death was ruled suicide. She had methadone, dextromethaphoran, diphenhydramine, and doxyliamine in her system. Christy, being a heroin addict, apparently didn't think that the deadly mixture her children consumed was going to be enough to do the trick for her high tolerance and added extra doses of dextromethaphoran and doxyliamine to her cocktail. Fuck. Overkill. Mm-hmm. Benjamin, whose death was also ruled a suicide, had toxic levels of heroin in his system. Given the position of his body, it is believed that he was the last to die, and an affidavit from an officer read, quote, with the placement of the bodies, it would appear somebody had to position the bodies after they were deceased, end quote, meaning that Benjamin Strack likely positioned the dead bodies of his wife and three children before killing himself. Oof, I don't want that job. No, and like, why? Yeah. I mean, why all of it? We'll we'll get into it. Investigators also theorized that because Jansen, the oldest son, was an adult who had a job and was engaged, he was not included in the Strax doomsday plan. So what the fuck? How and why did this happen? One theory was that perhaps Christy Strax cancer had come back. She had had ovarian cancer at one time, but was believed to be cancer-free at the time of her death. But as authorities got to digging, they uncovered an unusual relationship that Christie had with a convicted murderer, one that may have fanned the flames of fear and paranoia in the Strax, ultimately leading to their demise. What? Girl, this is crazy. This came out of left field. I was definitely not expecting this. What the fuck? Literally fucking same. Also, what is with women's obsession with having a relationship with a killer? I really don't get it. Girl. I know. We talk about this all the time. We're going to get into it. I really can't. I really can't. Oh, God. So let's get in our way, way back machine to the early aughts. The year is 2005, and Christy was reading the John Krakauer 
2003 hit true crime novel, Under the Banner of Heaven. For those who don't know, like myself, prior to working on this story, Under the Banner of Heaven chronicles the 1984 murder of Brenda Lafferty and her 15-month-old daughter, Erica. Brenda was married to Alan Lafferty, the youngest of the Lafferty brothers. The Lafferty's were a super prestigious Mormon family in Utah. They held a lot of sway and influence in the Mormon community and were even likened to the Kennedys. So they had an image to uphold. And Brenda wasn't a traditional Mormon wife. She wasn't meek and obedient. Brenda, a former beauty queen, was a college graduate, unlike the other women in the Lafferty household. Brenda was smart and independent and outspoken. She was a total spitfire and a badass who had no problem calling out bad behavior and was just not here for your bullshit. AKA, I have a strong suspicion that we would have gotten along really well with Brenda. Yes. Yes. Maybe she wouldn't have liked the cussing so much, but, you know, because she's Mormon. But <laughs> but that's okay. That's okay. We're totally here for Brenda. Yes. And while all of those qualities were things that made Ellen fall in love with her, she definitely ruffled feathers among the strict, well-to-do Mormon family, who expected a good Mormon wife to know her place, especially older brothers Dan and Ron Lafferty. Dan and Ron Lafferty were what you would call top-tier pieces of shit. The two brothers were best friends who were known for their short tempers and willingness to back each other in a fight, which was the type of shit that they learned from their father, Watson Lafferty, who, by all accounts, was also a piece of shit of the highest order. Watson Lafferty was a stern disciplinarian who seethed a quiet rage that he often directed at his wife and family pets. Okay, trigger warning for this, like, next sentence. Oh, no, no. Sorry, 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 sorry. For animal abuse, trigger warning, sorry. For instance... He beat the family dog to death with a baseball bat after getting into a fight with his wife. What the fuck? My jaw is just on the ground and I'm speechless and I got chills and I hate everything and I hate that. Who does that? A fucking psycho. A fucking psycho. Yeah, a psycho. Please. Okay. Did his wife stay with him? Yes. Yes, of course. That's what a good Mormon woman does. Stand by your man. No. Piece of shit. I would have killed that man in his sleep. A hundred percent. Yep. Be like, oh no, he died in his sleep. Mm." I would have poisoned him the next day. Yeah, absolutely. I'd be like, do you want a non-caffeinated tea, babe? I got you. That is so upsetting and horrifying. And just like, there is no way anyone can ever justify that to me. No. I mean, the only way I could ever see you, like, beating a dog to death is if the dog is, like, murdering you or attacking someone and, like, won't get off. And then you're like, I have to do this for safety. That's kind of, like, the only option. Yeah. How could you stay with this person? Literally the whole time I would just be thinking, well, I'm next. He's going to beat me to death with a baseball bat. Like, I don't understand. Yes. Um. So, like I said, a uh, piece of shit of the highest order. Correct. The Lafferty Patriarch was a religious extremist who planted seeds of paranoia, rebellion, and fanaticism in his boys, teaching them to distrust conventional medicine and the federal government. Great. He's one of these fucking people. In one incident, his son accidentally shot himself in the stomach with an arrow, and Watson told him that he would have to suffer with a goddamn arrow sticking out of his fucking stomach until morning as punishment for breaking the Sabbath. 
Wow. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's a parenting vibe. It's not the right one, but it's <laughs> exactly. a vibe. Exactly. So this is how Dan and Ron grew up, following in their father's footsteps. Dan refused to pay taxes or obey traffic laws because he believed that he was above the laws of man. The audacity is strong in this family, clearly. The hardest eye roll I've ever eye rolled. I can't. In 1982, the LDS church excommunicated Dan for trying to take his 14-year-old stepdaughter as a second wife. Ew! Girl. Fuck this guy. I, I hate him. Yes, because he, he's the fucking worst. He's the fucking worst. Uh, and I didn't know anything about this. So uh, this was fun to find out. Uh, because while there is a series that came out a few years ago called Under the Banner of Heaven, Christina was like, I started watching it. was like, why am I doing this to myself? This is awful. <laughs> so I didn't watch it. But I did start an episode yesterday. And it is very well done. But the story is horrific. So fun fact, the practice of polygamy or plural marriage was officially terminated within the LDS church in 1890. What? I don't think I realized that, actually. Me fucking neither. I knew that they had outlawed it in the church. I didn't realize that it was that long ago. Um, It's 1982 when Homeboy is trying to make his 14-year-old stepdaughter his second wife. And Homeboy's late to the party by 92 fucking years. And also a pedophile because he's a grown man trying to marry a 14-year-old. So... Continuing to be high on his own supply, Dan joined a breakaway polygamous sect called the School of the Prophets and told his brothers that they were receiving messages from God and that they were the true leaders of God's church. And because either who doesn't want to feel special and like the chosen one, or because realistically they might have been afraid of their brother and what he might do to them if they give him any pushback, the brothers said they believed him, and they all grew their hair and beards long to fit the look of a biblical prophet. Well, all the Lafferty brothers, except for one, Alan. Brenda didn't believe that Ron or Dan were prophets, and she had no problem telling them that. But when Brenda stopped Alan from joining the school of the prophets with his brothers, Ron's fury grew. The remaining five brothers became inseparable spending all of their time rallying against the LDS church and the U.S. government instead of spending it with their wives and children, which is pretty nuts when you think about how they wanted to have multiple wives. Like, bro, you're not even spending time with the one wife you have. Why do you want to add more wives to the mix? Just, it's, this is infuriating. It is. Everything about this is, is infuriating. But they did. Ron wanted to engage in plural marriages, and Ron's wife was like, mm, I don't think so, and left him. And Ron spiraled into madness, spending every waking moment writing what he believed would be scripture for the new church, because he's God's prophet and all. And just like his dad, Ron's grief at being left by his wife turned to rage. And in March of 1984, Ron wrote down what would later become known as the removal revelation. He claimed that God sent him a revelation telling him to kill Chloe Lowe, a former LDS Relief Society president who had supported his wife during the divorce, Richard Stowe, the Highland LDS stake president who had presided over his excommunication, and Brenda Lafferty, 
his youngest brother's strong-willed wife, who had not only not allowed her husband to join the School of the Prophets, but who Ron also believed was the reason that Dan's wife had left him, not the plural marriages or that he was an all-around piece of shit. And her 15-month-old baby and niece, mind you, Erica. Apparently, Dan shared his revelation with the School of Prophets, and they were like, um, how about no? Correct response, yes. Yep. And when the other members of the school failed to honor Ron's removal revelation, aka murdering four people, Ron and Dan chose to quit the sect and take care of God's business on their own. Then, on the afternoon of July 24th, 1984, Ron, 42, and Dan, 36, set out to fulfill the revelation. The two men forced their way into their sister-in-law's home, beat Brenda unconscious, strangled her with a vacuum cord until she went limp, and then slit her throat. She was 24 years old. Jesus fucking Christ. Literally. Dan later told reporters, quote, Then I walked into Erica's room. I talked to her for a minute. I said, I'm not sure why I'm supposed to do this, but I guess God wants you home. End quote. Oh, that's so chilling. No. Can you imagine? No, no, no. This is like giving me a visceral response. I don't like this. Okay, this next line. Yeah, it's going to be horrible. Yeah, this next line is going to be horrible. I'm so sorry. Um, Then he looked away as he slit his 15-month-old niece's throat which he did with such force that he nearly decapitated the infant. The theme of this story is overkill. That's what I'm getting. Yes, I agree. This is so upsetting, Monique. Girl, I did not know any of this part of the story. I just knew that like a guy came home and found his family dead and they thought it was a murder. And then I was like, no, it's a suicide because they were part of a doomsday cult. And then I was like, mm, but actually there's this like wild shit that's also attached to it. I was like, what? Luckily, the two men were arrested three weeks later while on the run in Reno, Nevada, before they were able to kill the two other people named in the quote-unquote removal revelation. The men were charged with two counts of criminal homicide, two counts of aggravated burglary, and two counts of conspiracy to commit homicide. Ron and Dan Lafferty were tried separately. In 1985, Ron was convicted and sentenced to death, while Dan, who claims responsibility for both murders, was sentenced to just life in prison due to a lone juror holdout. Bro, get with the program. Literally. In 2003, John Krakauer's nonfiction book, Under the Banner of Heaven, was released and offered new accounts of the murders and statements from the Lafferty brothers. Ever high on his own supply, Dan Lafferty says that he believed the book to be part of God's plan for him to spread his strange revelation. Go fuck yourself. So, This is backstory. It's a lot of backstory, but I feel it's very necessary. Because two years after Under the Banner of Heaven comes out, Christy Strack reads this book and apparently had a dream about Dan Lafferty. So the mother of four started writing letters to Dan while he was imprisoned in the Utah State Penitentiary. And while the relationship started innocently enough, it became clear that Christie's friendship with the convicted murderer became another one of her addictions as she spiraled into a deep obsession with Dan Lafferty and his principles. The constant letters turned into weekly visits at the penitentiary. 
And it wasn't long before even Ben was joining Christy on her trips to see Dan Lafferty. What the fuck is wrong with everyone in this story? I know. (sighs) Now you, reasonable person, are probably asking yourself, why? And it appears that Dan Lafferty had that cult leader swagger that you've heard about because Ben and Christy bought into it hook, line, and sinker. They bought into the religious persona that Dan projected and latched onto his ideologies and preachings, believing that Dan was the prophet and that he could heal Christie's ovarian cancer. Oh my God. You know who can? Doctors, probably. Yeah. They have a better shot. Than the guy who's in jail for murder? Yeah. And not just like this is justifiable murder, like murdered a 15-month-old, his 15-month-old niece. This is all so ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Also, I think there are people who shouldn't be allowed to have children. Just saying. Yeah. Just saying. Fair. You want to kill yourself? Go to fucking town. Don't bring the kids into it. Leave the children out of this. Yes. Fucking facts. And despite the fact that both Christy and Ben were both devoutly Mormon at this time, they started distancing themselves from the church as the couple both began to have a real, tangible fear that the end of the world was approaching and that God's wrath was going to be dealt across the land. This belief was no doubt fanned by Dan Lafferty, who preached that he was the prophet Elijah and that the world was hell and was controlled by the devil. So literally his fucking preachings. Jerk off motion all over everything. Yes. Yep. I can't. Now, If you think that this was a one-sided relationship, you'd be wrong because Dan, too, latched onto the couple that gave him so much attention. He encouraged their letters and visits and even wrote in his will that his ashes be sent to Christy and Ben when the time came. Yeah. All of this is so insane. Yes. All of it. Christy was so enamored with Dan that eventually... The two fell in love? No. No, you didn't. You're fucking delusional, both of you. And I cannot for one second abide by this bullshit. For sure. And like, here's the thing. Like, the two of them have mental illness. And then given the fact that they have so many years of, you know, substance abuse issues, they're way more susceptible to this kind of shit. And then not only that, like, it's kind of a very known thing that if you have addiction issues, you kind of look to other people as like another addiction which is why when you're an AA or NA you're not supposed to go into get into a relationship for a year because then you just transfer your addiction to the person yeah that's very true but as I mentioned before Dan had grown out his hair and his beard in the 15 years that he had been incarcerated to really sell the Jesus in his times look and his hair was so long that it was down to his waist and I guess that Christy wasn't vibing with that look and asked him to cut it which in a show of his love, he did, and then sent his waist-long hair to her as a gift, which fucking barf. Ew. That's gross. Throw it out like everyone else. Or donate it. Yeah. Lots of people need hair for wigs. But this guy's a piece of shit, so obviously he's not doing that. Also, she said she didn't like it on you. Like, don't send it to her. You know, yeah. Yeah. It's probably him being like, I love you so much that I did this for you. 
I at least hope he warned her and she didn't just like, I doubt it. Get a package in the mail and then open up and then they're like, oh my God, it's you got a package coming. <laughs> you get two feet of hair. Amazing. Wah. You're like, is it the cross stitch I ordered from Etsy? <laughs> no, it isn't, nope. bitch. It's your murderer boyfriend's hair. From federal prison. Oh my god. Yay. Allegedly, Ben knew Christy was in love with Dan and was totally cool with it because he too was under the spell of the quote unquote prophet. I've rolled my eyes so much in this story that I'm pretty sure I'm giving myself eye strain, but I just, there's no other response from me at this point. <laughs> it's insane. It's insane. I did not understand yes. the level at all of all of this. Dan said that he would often spend hours a day talking on the phone with the Strax, racking up phone bills in the thousands of dollars. What the fuck? Girl. Because he's talking to both of them. It's not just Christy. He's talking to both of them. Oh, my God. Some of his conversations with Christy turned sexual, and she even sent the religious zealot a photo of herself in her pajamas because, again, Mormons. Oh, my gosh. A dirty pajama picture? Stop it. So you're telling me he's having phone sex on the public prison phone? Absolutely. And she's like, I'm going to send you something really sexy, baby. And it's probably her, like, in a flannel pajama. <laughs> Full-length nightgown, like, up to the neck, down to the floor. Absolutely. Long sleeve with the ruffles. Yeah, like, the type of thing, like, when you look at it, you have to call her mother, you know? Like, fucking Mike Pence does to his wife, which is, like, gross. But, you know. <gasps> yes. You're like, my grandmother owns this. Yeah, exactly. But she's, like, showing an ankle, so it's really sexy or some shit. I don't fucking know. I don't know. <laughs> It's a vibe. Those damn slutty ankles. I got it. <laughs> I mean, they'll get you in trouble every time, girl. During their conversations, they discovered that Lafferty had connections to both Strax when they were children, as he lived not far away in Utah County. As their relationship developed, they talked about Dan's philosophy, how the world was hell, run by the devil, and that doomsday would be coming soon. Executive Director of the Cult Education Institute, Rick Ross, <laughs> Wait. I know. It's not, not that Rick not Ross. That Rick I really Ross, wish it was. Obviously. Okay. Can you fucking imagine? I was like, <laughs> I didn't know that was his side job. <laughs> I mean, he would get a billion brownie points in my eyes if that's what yeah. he did on, on the side. But this is another Rick Ross. He said that while Dan Lafferty is a cult leader with a small following, he can still wield a deep influence. Saying, quote, with Lafferty and those that pose as prophets, they all created a kind of doomsday crisis mentality where people felt that there was nothing in the world left to live for. When they killed themselves, they felt like they were doing something that was good. End quote. Christie also believed the end of the world was coming soon and shared with Dan that she had been having dreams about it. In 2008, the couple's relationship with Dan began tapering off for multiple legal reasons. Christy had tried to pass her brother off as Ben during one of her prison visits in hopes that he could meet the prophet. I don't know why she did this. Okay. I don't know. This makes no sense. But okay. Which led to a temporary removal of visitation rights. Then they lost all visitation privileges when the couple pled guilty to several criminal charges, including forgery, drug possession, and disorderly conduct. It was at this point that Christy and Ben pulled their kids out of school. 
Those around them thought that the couple were metaphorically leaving society and going off the grid. Christy and Dan exchanged letters for a while afterwards, but their correspondences stopped when Christy said that she didn't believe Dan was the prophet Elijah. And while that may have been the case, the damage was already done. When detectives later questioned Dan Lafferty following the deaths of the Strack family, he seemed just as surprised as anyone else. While it was determined that Lafferty had no prior knowledge of the murder-suicide plan, he acknowledged that his quote-unquote hell-on-earth philosophy is what likely led to the murder-suicides of the Strack family, saying, quote, My insanity messes with people's lives. It's just the way it is. End quote. Yep. Again, the eye rolls are nonstop. Yeah. The span is beyond belief. I really just like the audacity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very severe. It's very severe. But don't worry. Piece of shit. Dan Lafferty sees the silver lining to the unnecessary deaths of five people, saying, quote, I'll miss them, but I'm happy for them. I believe they're in paradise now. End quote. Go fuck yourself. Yeah. Dan Lafferty has not let up on his apocalyptic prophet bullshit and maintains that the apocalypse is coming soon. Although in a wildly self-aware moment, he confided in a reporter for the Salt Lake Tribune that maybe he's wrong. Maybe he isn't the prophet Elijah, seeing as how he thought the apocalypse was coming since he entered prison almost 40 years ago and still hasn't come. But the way Dan Lafferty sees it, only time will tell. And that is the awful, heartbreaking story of the murder-suicide of the Strack family who was influenced and ultimately preyed upon by a doomsday cultist, Dan Lafferty, ultimately making the Strack family Dan Lafferty's final victims. That story was insane. What the fuck? What the fuck? So many twists and turns. I had never heard that before, and that was very interesting but deeply disturbing. Yeah. So back in October, I did a story about someone coming home and finding their family dead, but it turned out that he was the one who had actually murdered them. But I had seen this story like somewhere, and I, that's what I was looking for to do in our whatever the fuck, awful October, yeah. <laughs> whatever it was called. Um, and I couldn't find it. And then I found it like a few weeks ago and I was like, fuck yes. And then I thought I like sent it to myself and I didn't. And then I was just like furiously Googling, like man comes home, finds family dead, suicide cult. And it was like Jonestown and Heaven's Gate. I'm like, there are more cults than Jonestown and Heaven's Gate, Google. Stop fucking me on this. Like help a bitch out. Thank you. 10,000%. But I eventually found it after hours, hours of looking. <laughs> I found it and I had no, um, I was not prepared for how fucked up it was. I was not prepared for how fucked up it was. But I'm so glad you found it. That was upsetting, but deeply fascinating. Thank you so much for that story. For sure. Fuck cults, man. Not cool, bro. Fuck them. Get out. Yeah. And if you you have an inkling that you're in one, just get out. Just leave. Yeah. Do what you need to do to go. That story was wild. I really, again, was not prepared. I gave myself eye strain from rolling my eyes so many times. Just insane. Yeah. Fuck these people. If you want to find out more about the Lafferty's and what they did and the pieces of shit that they are, 
you can see the multiple part series under the banner of heaven with uh, Andrew Garfield on Hulu or read the book. Or the book's great. Uh, but fuck these people. Fuck Dan Lafferty. Agreed. Piece of shit. Yeah. Top to bottom. And thank you so much for your story. Also fascinating and disturbing. Thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I figured since uh, Loved it. we're obsessed with the true detective night country, that would be a nice little little side story for us. I loved it. To hold us over until the next episode. Oh my God. Like, could you imagine if that's what it is? <gasps> if you like solved no, fucking no, true detective night country? No, I definitely didn't. I definitely didn't. Maybe she did. But I mean, I would be deeply fascinated by that still. So we'll have to watch and find out. I am so excited. I'm extra excited now. <gasps> oh my God. I love it. I'm glad. I love you. Thank you again for that wildly upsetting story. For sure. I love you. And we love you guys. Thank you so much for listening to another fucking horror podcast. I'm Monique Sanchez. And I'm Amy Traden. You can find me on the gram at penupgirlmo. You can find me at lobotomy and that's lobot period Amy. You should also follow the show on the gram. We're at another fucking horror podcast. Every sixth episode, we do a True Listener Tales episode, which is next week. So if you have any experiences with this wild shit in Alaska or any other wild shit, email us at anotherfuckinghorrorpodcast at gmail.com with a period instead of the you and fucking. If you like this show, tell a friend, tell two friends. Also, leave us a review. It definitely helps us get more visibility so that more people find us so that hopefully we will be able to do this podcast full time sooner rather than later. We are so obsessed with you. Keep it cute. Keep it creepy. Bye. Bye.